Nehemiah is the story of God keeping his promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through his people for their flourishing both spiritually through ordering their lives around his word and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program, and the dependence of God's people in His power to effect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through His church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people, so that now, through His continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and His world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city. For the rest of you, if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. It is... If you go about halfway through your Bible, you've got Psalms, and you uh, start taking a left, you head back, you've got Job, Esther, and then Nehemiah, so it's right there. We are in week two of our fall series through the book of Nehemiah which we are calling Renewing a City, and we're doing that because this book is ultimately about renewal. The spiritual renewal of a people through the grace of God and the renewal of a city through the establishment of structures within which the people can flourish. And and last week, we began to look at the problem, right? Some of you will remember that. You were here. That Jerusalem, Nehemiah had found out, was a city with broken walls and gates, which meant that it was a place with no economy, with no government, uh, with no security with, with, uh, with no way for people to flourish. But we also saw that the city was broken because we're broken. That Jerusalem was broken because God's people were broken. Uh, and that the urban landscape reflected a people who remained guilty, broken, and alienated from God because of their sin. And finally, we saw this problem of a broken people in broken communities is ultimately what Jesus came to solve. Right, That by redeeming people who, who would then enact his rule in their city, Jesus came to transform things. And in the language we use here, as folks encounter Jesus and come to know him, they begin showing him throughout their community. But where do we begin, right? What's the starting point? Or better, what is the foundation? What's the foundation that undergirds this whole enterprise of renewal? Is it our social conscience? Is it our administrative prowess? Is it our ingenuity? That's the question we're going to take to the text this morning. So if you have your place in Nehemiah, if you'd stand in honor of God's Word. We're going to be reading chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Let's remember that these are God's very words. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come, we ask that you would... uh, Speak to us. We have already come seeing signs of the covenant. Now we're going to hear more about that covenant, the fact that you are a promise-keeping, a faithful God, and we ask that you would bear that truth upon our hearts, that no matter what story we walked into this room with, that we would walk out of it praising and thanking the God who is true to his word. But Lord, for that to happen, you've got to work because our hearts are hard, all of us. Our ears are dull to hearing, and so we need you to open our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you, and our hearts to receive you, and let Jesus and all that he has done come to the foreground, and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. We ask all these things in the great name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. In in my home, we, we have a phrase that we throw out every once in a while. Um, it, it, it's called Finding the Bomber. And the, the phrase comes from the events of the Boston Marathon in 2013, where looking at the news reports of the tragedy and then attempting to wrap our minds around how investigators even began to go about finding the two men responsible for those acts of terror, uh, we saw an event that was too big for us. How do you, how do you find the bomber? I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to find the bomber. So let me ask you a question. When you hit something, when you hit an issue, when you hit a problem, you hit a hitch, where does your trust go? And don't, don't run past that question because it's important. Do you think to yourself, when you have a situation in which it's, it's too big for you, like the bomber, do you, do you find yourself thinking, well, does it go to money? Like, if I just had enough money, I could, I could handle this. Does it go to cleverness? I, I can think my way around this. I can scheme my way through this issue. Does it go to order and administration? Does it go to power? We ask this question because if you had just heard that your people, that the people that you considered your people were stuck in their brokenness and that their city was unable to protect or provide for them, what would your next step be? Where would you run with that? What we are going to see this morning is that the foundation for renewal isn't found in anything in us at all, but all found in God. And so this morning, as always, there's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look at this in three ways. I know that's surprising. We're going to look at a foundational character. We're going to look at foundational acts. And then we're going to look at renewing our foundations. Okay? So foundational character, foundational acts, and then renewing our foundations. Okay? Now, before we get to the foundational character and and specifically God's character, can we just notice something? When Nehemiah hears this report, right? You remember the report? Jerusalem's walls and 
are broken down, its gates are in ruin, the people are in trouble and shame. He hears this report. It says that he weeps and mourns for days, and then he fasts and prays. That's his go-to. That's his go-to response. Was that on your list? Like when a situation gets too big for you, was that on your list? Like, oh, Rick, I know what I'll do. I'll weep, mourn, and fast and pray for days. Eh, I, I doubt it. We're Americans, right? If it doesn't happen in 20 minutes, it's not God's will. So here, what we have in this passage ultimately is a prayer. But this prayer gives us great insight into what it is that the rest of this, built, this book is going to be built upon. So let's begin this by looking at character first and first God. So look down at verse 5. Nehemiah says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, keep his commandments. All right, now stop there. There is actually a ton of stuff in this little verse. We, we could actually probably talk about this for our entire time, um, but we're not going to. I want to focus on what is really foreign to us in this, and that's this idea of covenant. This idea of a covenant is all over this verse, multiple places. Uh, but that doesn't help us much because we aren't that familiar with the concept, so let me explain. Uh, probably an overly simple definition, which I love overly simple definitions because they're great starting points and you can study further if you want, right? An overly simple definition is that a covenant is a promise-bound relationship. It's a promise-bound relationship. Now, I say that and you're like, but wait a minute, all relationships to some extent have that character to them, right? Because when you're friends with someone, you have certain expectations, they're not going to stab me in the back, either literally or metaphorically. You know, there's certain things that they're going to do or not do, and I'm going to do or not do. But a covenant is when you make those assumptions explicit. But it's different from a contract, because a contract is like, I'll do this if you do that, right? That's not a covenant. That's a contract. A covenant is, I will do this. And the other person says, I will do this. But neither that if isn't in the, in the equation. It is, this is the way that God interacts with his creation. He does it through covenants. We see this right at the beginning. Right in the garden when Adam and Eve, they fall, they, they're sin, they've sinned, they've, they've made a mess of the world and a mess of their lives and God shows up on the scene and he says, what have you done? And they tell him, and he makes a promise. He says in Genesis 3.15, as he's, he's uh, talking to the serpent, he says, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make this right. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Everything has gone to pot. Humanity is guilty, broken, sinful by nature, alienated from God. But God makes a promise that he will make things right and deal with sin. And this, this promise is what theologians call the proto-evangel, the first gospel. They also call it the covenant of grace. This covenant of grace, this promise by God to fix what we broke, to reconcile, him to, reconcile us to himself and to right the world, is then worked out through all of the Bible. All of the Bible is a great outlay and outplay of this covenant of grace. We see it worked out through Abraham, where, Abra- where God comes to Abraham, calls him to himself by grace. In other words, it wasn't by anything Abraham did. Abraham wasn't looking for the, for the God of Israel, who wasn't called that yet. But he wasn't looking for him at that point. He didn't even, he could care less. He lived in the city of Ur. He's war- worshiping false gods. 
And God comes to him and says, I'm going to rescue you. Draw you to myself. And then he says, not only that, that would be good enough. But Abraham, a long time ago I made this promise to fix the world. I'm going to do it through your family. In other words, he makes a covenant with him. We see it in Moses where God hears the cries of his people in slavery. He remembers, he says, I remember the promises. I remember the covenant I made with Abraham. And then he rescues them. And then after rescuing God's people, and this is so important, I cannot drill this home enough for us. After God rescued this people, he then gave them a law that says, this is what being a rescued people will look like. This this idea of covenant is all through the Bible. And three times in this one verse, the notion of God as a covenant God is invoked. The first one is when, if you look in your Bibles, he calls God the Lord in all capital letters, right? If you have your Bible, you can underline that. That's a really kind of important little place. When you, when you see that in your, in your Old Testament, especially in all capital letters, that is a particular word that the, the translators are translating. It's God's covenant name, Yahweh. It's a name that was only to be invoked by those who were in covenant relationship with him. In other words, only his covenant people could use it. So, so here, Nehemiah is already drawing our attention towards the covenant. The second The second way that he invokes the idea of covenant is through that phrase, keeps covenant. That would make sense, right? Someone who keeps covenant means that they are true to their promises. They are faithful to what they said they would do. So he is the covenant Lord, the covenant God, Yahweh, who keeps his covenant, who is faithful always to keep his promises. And the last way that this is brought about is this concept of steadfast love. That is a particular Hebrew word. Chesed is the word. Um, it, is, it has no equivalent in English. We have no way of translating that, which is why you, in different Bibles we'll translate it different ways. You'll see a steadfast love or sometimes loyalty. There's different things. It means love, certainly. But not that low-bar, affection-only type love that we have in our culture, right? That as soon as affection runs out, so does any connection. And it, it means loyalty, but not that kind of low bar, cold, duty bound, without any affection type thing. It is, it is both more um, legally binding than, than just affection, but also more affectionate than just duty. Best would maybe be a willingness to be true in seeking the good of another no matter their behavior. Maybe that's a good way. It's wordy. Thus you get steadfast love, right? It's like, well, that's really wordy. Uh, But this is the character of the God that Nehemiah is invoking. Here's, Here's why this matters. That kind of God would have been crazy to think about in Nehemiah's day. Crazy to think about in our own day. See, during Nehemiah's day, the gods of the nations were fickle and capricious. They did whatever they wanted to do and you could never kind of judge when they were going to do something or how it was going to work. The the world in which Nehemiah lived, even the world in which we lived, the thought was things are chaotic. Things happen and they're crazy and there's no rhyme or reason and and there's, there's, we, we have these deities and maybe we can get them on our side. And so what they would do in the ancient world is they would feed them. 
I know, right? Like, they would feed them. They would bring a meal, like food, to an idol and sit there, and then they would walk away. My guess is then animals would come eat it, and then they'd come back and go, look, the gods ate the food, and then they're, they're cool with it. But they would try and feed them to get them on their side. Or, or, if you were a practitioner of magic, you knew the right incantations, you knew the right words, you could actually force them to do what you wanted. But in no sense was there an idea that God actually was for you. Never was there a sense that God actually would make a promise to you and keep it. Never. Until the God of the Bible. Here is a God who keeps his promises, who acts out of steadfast covenant love, who binds himself to people, binds himself, says to Abraham, not only you're going to be my people, he says, and I'm going to be yours. Not only are you my possession, he says, but I am your possession. Can you imagine that? The God, of the, the God who created all things comes to a dude in Ur and says, Abraham, you're going to come with me now. You're mine. And he, goes, and he probably would have been like, oh, okay, I get that. And he says, and I'm yours. What? what? Yeah, I, I belong to you now. What? Me? Have you seen me? Yeah. You're mine, and I'm yours. See, our God is faithful, and that makes all the difference. And that's God's character. Now let's look at it. Nehemiah presents ours. Look down at verses 6 and 7. He says, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you. You have not kept the commandments, statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. All right, now stop there. Before I go any further, I need to clear up who he's talking about. Because Nehemiah is not talking about those heathens out there. He's talking about God's people. The religious folk. We have sinned, he says. We have sinned. These are the people who, who have the rules, who have the statutes. He has the, they have the commands. It's not those out there who don't know any better. He's talking about himself. He's talking about God's people. They certainly haven't kept them. Now, he wouldn't have argued the fact that those those. People who don't know God, they haven't kept the commands, rules, and statutes either. Like he would say, of course they haven't. But his whole point is, we haven't. He's talking about those who should have known better. So he first talks about God's faithfulness, then he talks about our unfaithfulness. Two things I want to see here. First is this notion of sin. Nehemiah talks about keeping the commands, statutes, and rules. And some of you, as I say that, are really confused. You're like, Rick, I've been here a while, and you always say it's not about breaking rules. He just said it's about breaking rules. So which is it? Well, that word rules is a word that, that's uh, the, the English Standard Version translated it rules. It means um, judgments. In other words, it means when a judge would make a decision, it's a precedent. For those of you in the legal trade, like it's, it's a precedent that a judge is setting. Like they're making a, a judgment on the law into a certain situation and it, it's a precedent. And so when he talks about the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which is a better way of translating it, he's talking about all of the law, the whole of it. And so what Nehemiah is saying is that God has been faithful to the covenant, but we have not. 
God is faithful and we are faithless. Because you see, God's covenant of grace is about reconciliation with him. That's what he promised in the garden. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to make you hate sin and independence and I'm going to bring you back to myself. He promises to save. We promise faith and repentance. We promise to turn from our betrayal of him. But we don't, do we? We don't. We still betray him. And the Bible says that is because we are broken. That we are by nature turned away from him. See, God's people, again, they had the statutes. They had the commands. They had the judgments. They had all of these things. But they couldn't keep them. And that's the whole point. We don't need to make more promises to God. It's like, okay, I got it. I I messed up this time. I failed. All I need to do now is make another promise. Really? Come on, y'all. Like, you've made New Year's resolutions. They last how long? 20, 30 seconds? A week if you're really good at it. You'll see them on January if you ever go to the Y. Everybody's there, and it's all New Year's resolutions, right? And it lasts two weeks. We don't need more promises. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued. So that's the first thing about this. The second thing is where he places himself in this. He confesses the people's sins, which is interesting enough, right? He's doing that in place of them. And then he says, I'm no different. Now this is huge, so listen close. The Bible is very clear that there is no one who is sinless. That there is no one who is any better than anyone else. Now sure, our sin may look different. Some of us, our sin looks like that silent self-righteousness and judgment or judgmentalism. Others of us, it looks like open and clear violation of God's law, but it's no different. It's all the same. That ground is level. And so I don't care what you have done or haven't done this morning. Before God, as Nehemiah tells us here, you and I are no less broken than anyone else. No less in need of a Savior. And no more in need either. That's our character. Now look, let's look at our actions. Okay. Look down at verses 8 and 9. We're going to look at our actions. And so, Nehemiah begins quoting something right here. And it's kind of a conglomeration of two passages. Leviticus 20, uh, which I'm sure all of you recognize that right offhand. You're like, oh yeah, Leviticus 20. I was just reading that yesterday. No one does that. Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 28. And in these passages, God says, look, I'm true to my promises. But I know y'all. And so when you're not, and you won't be, I'm going to do some stuff to try and get your attention. I'm going to send some people to warn you. But when you don't listen to them, and you won't, I'm going to begin upping the ante to get your attention. And if you still aren't listening, I'll get your attention the only way I think I can, which is I'm going to send you into exile. Now, If you're a parent in the room, it's kind of like how you warn your kids about escalating discipline, you know? Like, you know, it's like you got, some of you are like, yeah, my my parents did that to me like two years ago. But like, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, like, um, you got, you you got a week, a week restriction. And they keep talking, you're like, you want to make it two? You know, it's like, want to make it four? Like, how long do you want to be grounded? That's kind of like what, what we're talking about here. And that's what exile was. You see, in the same way, look, parental discipline isn't to make kids pay for their actions. 
Some of us think that. Some of us believe that that's what was going on. It's not what it's for. It's to seek to correct it, to seek to, to, to restore God's people, the ones who had all the right rules, all the right laws, all the right forms of, forms of worship. They couldn't keep any of them. And so God sent them into exile to bring them to repentance. But he was still true to his promise. That's why verse 9 is in there. Look down at verse 9. That's the promise that if they repented and returned to him, he would end their exile. He would reconcile them to himself or to himself. Now, here's the problem, right? Have they? Have the people repented? No. They have not. The wall is still broken, right? The gates are still burned. The people are still in trouble and shame. In other words, God has given them an open door. If you just return to me, I will restore you. He's given them an open door. And they can't walk through it. But Nehemiah doesn't seem to be as worried about our actions as he is about God's. Let's look at God's actions. Look down at verses 10 and 11. What is striking in these verses is that Nehemiah, what, is what Nehemiah doesn't say, right? Because what he doesn't say is, after verse 9, when he says, like, look, you promised that if we repented, you would bring us back to you. Verse 10 does not start off, and we did. So get on it. You are unjust. You are not good. Because you need to, we have done our part, and you need to do yours. Is that what he says? It's not what he says at all. In fact, he already said, we, we haven't done this. He said, we sinned, all of us. In other words, he's saying, we have no basis to make you do anything. We can't tell you that you owe us because you don't owe us anything. But he says instead, we are your people. In other words, Nehemiah is saying, have mercy on us. Show us grace. Show us favor that we don't deserve. You acted to save us before when we were stuck in our sin because you are faithful. Now please do it again. Do you see it? Nehemiah is basing his hope on nothing less than the grace of God. He has heard of a city in ruins and a people in ruins. He has heard that nothing has changed, that God's people are still in their brokenness. And what he doesn't say is, God, we don't deserve this. Me and my daddy's house, we are good. You owe us. God, look at all our goodness. You aren't being fair. Instead, he's saying, out of your grace, out of your love, out of your chesed, your covenant faithfulness, rescue us, Lord. We haven't returned to you. Won't you return to us? This is the foundation of everything this book will talk about. Nehemiah isn't trusting in his administrative gifts, though he has them. We'll see them. He's very good at them. He isn't trusting in his position, though he has that. That's what that whole cupbearer thing is about. He isn't trusting in his plan, though what we're going to see next week is that he's got one in his back pocket. He's got a really good plan. Detailed. He isn't even trusting in his religiosity that God will see what good people they are and reward them. They and we are not. He knows if there is going to be change in people, if, if there will be change in the city he loves, it will be all by God's grace alone or it will not come. God's grace and faithfulness is the foundation for renewal. 
So with that in mind, let's speak in a more applied manner, if I can, by renewing foundations. We've looked at foundational character. We've looked at foundational actions. Now let's look at renewing those foundations first in terms of foundational grace. Listen, whether we are talking about our own standing before God, change in our neighborhood, change in our city, whatever it is, the foundation of it, as we've seen in this passage, must be the grace of God. He is the basis. But see, I know that you and I like to think that we have something to offer him, do we not? Like he's like the cosmic grandfather who who is too blind to see who you really are. Look at what Nehemiah says. You want to get God to like you? You want to make him owe you something? Return to him. Keep all of his commandments. Did you see that? If you return to me and keep all the commandments, all of them. Anyone game? Some of you are like, Rick, that's not possible. That's the whole point. That is the whole point. No one has done that. That's not true. One person has. Jesus. You see, Jesus is how God is true to his covenant promise. Jesus is the way in which the mercy of God and the justice of God kiss and meet. We didn't return to God. We didn't keep his commandments. But Jesus did because no human could do it. Because no human could fulfill the covenant. God took on humanity to himself and he did it for us. What we did was sin. All of us. And so Jesus came not just to live perfectly, not just to do all that we couldn't do, but then to die sacrificially. I know that most, many of us, maybe not most, but many of us think that what God really wants from us, that what makes a Christian is that we just try hard, right? We try hard and say sorry when we, when we mess up. And we're hoping, many of us are hoping that God is not really God, that he's more like a bear. I talk about this a lot, but he's a, the hungry bear, and you don't have to outrun the bear, you just got to outrun the guy next to you, or trip him. More likely, you'll trip him, right? God requires, not that you're a little better than your neighbor, God requires perfection, but, but, and listen, what God requires, he provides. What God requires, he provides, because it is about him. It is about His grace. And so I don't care if you came in this place this morning still strung out from the lines that you snorted last night. Or you came into this church like you have every other Sunday for the last 80 or so years. Before God, we all need grace. Jesus is that grace. So come to Jesus and find And find that grace because God is willing to receive you in Christ. It is all about Him. But secondly, that's foundational grace. We also need to see foundational truth. It is poignant that Nehemiah began a great work of renewal with prayer. He is going to see God change things. Right? And he's going to God so that he might see change. And that is based on at least three things we need to understand this morning. Three truths that I want to push on. And they're a little more theological, so stick with me if you can. The the first is that God is sovereign. 
Okay, that is a word that means that God rules over all things. That nothing happens outside of his control and that nothing happens outside of his plan. That's what the Bible teaches. Is that mysterious? Is it hard to reconcile at times? Is it frustrating? Yes, yes, and yes. But listen, let me challenge you on something. If you worship a God who is small enough for you to be able to understand completely. You do not worship a God worth worshiping. You have simply projected an image on a screen of yourself, only bigger. Like Psalm 127 verse 1 says, that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. God is sovereign. Secondly, God has the entire picture. What that means is that God sees comprehensively what you and I only see in part. We may think we know what should happen with this or such circumstance. But you know, we have this rule in human affairs that we talk about all the time. It's called unintended consequences. We thought something was good, and we're like, we're doing this, and this is great, and this is the best thing I could ever see. And then something bad happens down the road, and you're like, huh, I didn't see that coming. I, I didn't intend for that. <laughs> it's not. God doesn't have unintended consequences. See, we, we think a plan might be good and it doesn't happen. And when it doesn't happen, we then go and we, we argue with God and we say, God, you're not really good. Just because a plan that you think is good doesn't work out doesn't mean that God isn't good. It probably means we aren't seeing things as clearly as we think we are. We see one strand and God sees the tapestry. In fact, not only does he see the tapestry, he's actually weaving it. So God is sovereign. God has the entire picture. Lastly, God is a God of covenant. God has made promises. And Nehemiah does not mind calling him to them. Did you notice that? That's why he starts with, Lord, you've been faithful and loving. And now, and he starts arguing. What does this mean for us? Parents, as you struggle with wandering children... Claim the covenant of promises, covenant promises of God on their behalf. As you look at your friends and see those who don't know Jesus, pray passages like Zechariah 2.11 about many nations joining themselves to God or, or Isaiah 49.6 where Jesus is called a light to the nations. In other words, a light to many who don't know Him. To draw them to Himself. God is a God of covenant, which means God cares for the world and those for whom Christ died far more than we do. So bring these to him in prayer. Lastly, I want to look at a foundational trust. Nehemiah trusted God. I, I, and, and I know not perfectly. He's not a hero of the faith. He's going to do some stuff later in the book that you're like, dude, like he is beats the tar out of somebody because they put their stuff in a room in the temple and like pulls out hair out of their beard and like he's gonna, he's, This is not the perfect man, okay? What we are going to see is that though he does trust God, he, he's putting his life in God's hands. That's what he says. He's like, give me favor with this man today. You know who the man is? We're going to find out next week. It's Artaxerxes, the king. He's the cupbearer to the king. He's about to ask him for something that could get him killed. But he trusts God. Is that because God owed him something? 
Is it maybe because he had a way of hedging his bets? Like, okay, God, I'm going to trust you for this, but I've got my, I got my way out if I need it. No, not at all. It was because he knew his God. He looks back. That prayer is full of him looking back at God's dealings with the people. In other words, he knows his Bible. He's read his Bible. He understands how God has acted in the past. And he goes, in light of how God has acted in the past, I'm going to... I'm going to act on that and trust that he's going to be a God who will do the same. He knows that his God is the God of covenant, that he's a promise-keeping God. He knows that he's made those promises, and he's going to call him to keep them. Is this the God that you know? Do you know this God? Or is your God capricious? Is it God to me? God to me, oh, he thinks this. But at other times, God to me thinks something else because God to me pretty much goes wherever I'm going that day. Do you know this God? Do you trust Him? Because listen, if God is not faithful, if God does not keep His promises, what are we doing here? If God is not going to act in grace, why are we here worshiping? Because if God doesn't do that, we're all lost. And I'd be the first one off the cliff. We're done. If God does not keep his promise, if he does not act in spite of my failures, in spite of your failures, we are done because we are all lost people. Is that the God that you are willing to trust? We, we stand up here week after week and we, we um, at least twice a month, we proclaim the, cover, the, the Apostles' Creed. That we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you? Because if you believe in the forgiveness of sins, why do you tarry so long away from the forgiver? If you believe that God is a forgiver, that He's God the Father Almighty, maker of all things, and in Jesus Christ His only Son, our Lord, if you believe in the One who who has reconciled all things to Himself, why do you stay aloof from the reconciler? What are you doing here? Is this the God you trust in, or do you still think that he's not trustworthy? Last little thought. You know why so many of us don't see change in our lives? Myself included. It is because we are either depending on our own ability... Our foundation is on what I can do, the promises I can make, the fences I can put up around my sin, the way that I can hide from others because I can't change, but at least they won't know that. Or we've simply given up because we know the job is too big for us. I can't change my heart, Rick. I've tried. I know you can't find the bomber. And no one's asking you to. Friends, do you want to know that God is for you? Look to the cross. Because God hangs there. God hangs there to rescue you from your sin. Not from your, I used to sin. Not from your, I made promises to stop sinning. From your sin as a sinner. Do you want to know that God is for the world's flourishing? Do you want to know that God is for the change of your city, your neighborhood, the folks that you love? Look to the empty tomb because Jesus is risen as a down payment on a world made right. And that power, that same power that raised Christ from the dead, is at work in us as God's people. 
the foundation for renewal in our own hearts and in our city is not our abilities. It's not our money. It's not our goodness. Praise God. It is in the faithfulness, power, and love of our God made sure for us in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, over all this, I know if my friends here this morning are anything like me, we all struggle to trust you. That when the stuff hits the fan, when things go crazy in our lives, when we see our own sin, when we see the brokenness in our neighborhoods, and our families, we don't know that we can trust you with it. It's hard. But you are a, the Lord, Yahweh, covenantly faithful with steadfast love. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in us and change us, that we might come to you trust you as the foundation for all the change that we look for. To see in you a gracious God who loves us in spite of our failures. A merciful God who though wronged is willing to receive us. To be changed by the gospel and then to go forward into our city as agents of the gospel to see that same power released into others' lives. We ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.